1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to "Let's Be
1: Real" with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HouseStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm Caroline. And today, we are talking about Phyllis Schlafly. This episode has been a long time coming, Mm -hmm. but ever since she died on September 5th, Mm -hmm. 2016, we've been talking amongst ourselves, Caroline and I, about how we should do an episode on Phyllis. We've heard from a number of listeners asking whether we're going to do a Phyllis Schlafly episode, and...
2: How could we not? How could we not? Especially after my Twitter response to her passing, um, brought men out of the woodwork to tell me that I was a monster. So. What, what, what did you tweet? Um, I tweeted a Zendaya gif where Zendaya was just going, bye. <laughs> and, uh, that was it. And conservative gentlemen did not appreciate that. And called me a fat feminist monster. Oh, no. They called
3: you fat. Oh, isn't that the worst thing a woman can be called? <gasps> totally. How did you even survive it? I don't know.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Eating even more feminism. <laughs> eating
3: eating all the feminists. Yeah. Well, it's also apropos to talk about Schlafly, because in a lot of ways, she paved the way for Donald Trump being the Republican nominee for president this year.
2: Yeah, and and I would argue that her star was definitely rising at the same time that the Republican Party was veering more toward the Reaganification, you know, mm-hmm. uh, aligning with the religious right um, than uh, it previously had been.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's how she made her name was definitely by essentially ushering, helping usher, what was this fringe right wing group of Republicans, sort of like we think of the Tea Party today into the mainstream, because for a long time they were just sort of off in the corner uh, and not really taken all that seriously. But then, as we'll talk about more, Phyllis Schlafly showed America (laughs) that these right wing conservatives could win in the polls. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Let's talk a little bit more about who this woman is, because for I I feel like you either absolutely know who she is because she's the arch nemesis of second wave feminism, or you probably never heard of her. So let's give a quick primer of who this Schlafly, who's this Schlafly lady is? Who's this dame?
2: Well, I mean, you're right. She's absolutely considered one of the most polarizing figures in American public political life. And she's basically, I don't know, what would you, she's an author, she's a politician to a degree. Um, and she is best known for her war against the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, she is a grassroots conservative political
3: organizer mm-hmm. who is now considered an icon. Among you know ultra right wing Republicans, Donald Trump included, and we read her obituary in both the New York Times, obviously more liberal, some might call it the lamestream media if they're schlafly fans <laughs> and then we read her obit in the National Review, which is ultra conservative, of course. And the New York Times described her as, quote, a self-described housewife who displayed a moral ferocity reminiscent of the axe-wielding prohibitionist Carrie Nation.
2: So she's a tough cookie. (laughs) A real tough cookie. Uh,
3: And then the National Review described her, meanwhile, as one of the original happy warriors, funny, gracious, and grittier than one might expect. And it's... Astonishing to trace back our political climate today and everything that we are now witnessing in terms of Donald Trump's supporters and the types of white dudes who came after you on Twitter, for instance, and trace that all the way back to this woman in the Midwest who in a lot of ways started out almost like Hillary Clinton. She was from a relatively like working class background, although Hillary Clinton came from a, a well, a slightly wealthier middle class family. But Schlafly, you know, was scrappy mm-hmm. and she was smart mm-hmm. and she was ambitious. And then you know, the, any similarity she might have to Hillary Clinton just ends right there.
2: Well, yeah. And I mean, they both initially supported Barry Goldwater, too. True. Before, before Hills went the other direction. But yeah. And I mean, you can look at the, uh, the fact that nowadays Catholics and, uh, evangelical Christians work together when they are on the right. Um, you can trace that back to Phyllis Schlafly as well. She was Catholic, um, devoutly Catholic, but through and we'll get to this more in a second. But like through all of her grassroots efforts, she brought more women of different faiths and different denominations into the political fold to try to combat this sort of what she viewed as, you know, liberalization, the downfall of American society. And in a lot of ways, she is. A
3: difficult woman to summarize because she's kind of a basket of contradictions. Yeah, because she is this very ambitious, self-sufficient woman in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways who said that from the get go when she was growing up, she knew that she would need to take care of herself. And in her political career, she was extremely uh, visible. She wrote 20 books. I mean, the woman never stopped. And yet Publicly, she always said that she was a housewife first mm-hmm. and that politics was just a hobby because she has six children at home and her husband, Fred Schlafly, is k- king, essentially. And she does whatever he allows her to do, even though, like in the same breath, she'll also say, you know, but I can do whatever I want. Um And she relished starting this organization called Stop ERA, uh, which was, um, intended to stop the Equal Rights Amendment. Well, yeah. And STOP was
2: actually an acronym for Stop Taking Our Privileges, ERA.
3: Which is, when I, when I learned about that acronym was also my, my brain exploded a little bit about just how, how blatant the intention is right there of privileges, stop taking our privileges because I mean, Phyllis Schlafly would be like, yeah, I mean, I love white privileges. Terrific.
2: Yeah. I, um, when I was researching her life and, and activism and politics, my brain just kept collapsing on itself because to me, as a liberal feminist and one who cares about having equal rights for people of all backgrounds, none of it made sense because I'm like, why would you want to stop the ERA when, oh, wait, no, but you only want the privileges for you and yours.
3: Well, okay. So I was, I take back what I say that she would say she would be all about her white privilege because what Phyllis Schlafly did and Donald Trump does is she would deny that privilege even exists. Oh, well, sure.
2: In the same way that she denies that, Denied that sexism even existed. Well, privilege in the way that we talk about it now and on our podcast. But I mean, she actively talked about the privileges afforded to women. Right. In the sense of chivalry, almost. Right. Yes. So her
3: latest book, A Conservative Case for Trump, came out just after her death. And she describes in it Trump as a quote, old fashioned man. Grounded in his two great priorities, hard work and family, and a man who, in other respects, has led a remarkably clean life. Okay, so I mean, this is this is the the viewpoint that we're dealing with. This is the kind of <laughs> choose your own reality <laughs> <laughs> that Phyllis Schlafly was able to mold into a startlingly powerful career for herself. And it makes sense that right before her death at 92 years old, she came out um, uh, stumping for Trump because she was all about populism. She was all about demagoguery and she was all about, you know, galvanizing this hyper conservative evangelical religious right that has similarly flocked
2: to Trump. Well, and uh, regardless of whether you as the politician she was stumping for were hyper Republican or whatever, she just hated the establishment. Right. That's like some of the same rhetoric you hear a lot right now. And, And she saw Trump as an answer to those establishment politics. And she was really she harped for decades on kingmakers, the idea of like a secret group of rich, liberal, elite kingmakers who sat around appointing politicians around the world.
3: Yeah, I mean, because that right there is a core tenet of populism, where the belief is that almost conspiratorially that it's just a group of Powerful people who are making all the decisions, so power to the people, let's overthrow them. And she told Breitbart in January of this year, 2016, that, quote, Trump is the only hope to defeat the kingmakers because everybody else will fall in line. So, I mean, she really believed in this kingmaker business to her death. And I mean, that's that's also something to keep in mind as we talk about Phyllis Schlafly and something that was impressed upon me reading about her timeline is how she has not changed in her political viewpoints at all. She still tells the same anecdotes that she did, you know, in the Mm sixties. So how did Phyllis happen?
2: Um Well, let's give a little bit of biographical background real quick. She was born in August 1924 as Phyllis McAlpin Stewart uh, in St. Louis. Uh, I did have a moment of concern because a lot of my people are from St. Louis. And I did wonder, like, oh, she came up in St. Louis around the same time as my grandmother. Wonder if they were friends. Um, She was the oldest of two daughters to Odile Dodge, who was her mother, and John Bruce Stewart. And what's really interesting is that, I mean, by all accounts, her mother was also a very hard worker. She worked outside the home. She was a teacher with two college degrees. And that's not shabby at all for a woman who was born at the end of the 19th century. <laughs> Her mother, not Phyllis. Right. I mean, and and Odile ended up
3: being the breadwinner because her dad, John Bruce Stewart, was a Westinghouse machinist and an industrial equipment salesman. And after he lost his job in the Great Depression, Odile had to become the breadwinner. And she hustled. She was a department store saleswoman. She was an elementary school teacher and a librarian at the St. Louis Art Museum. And... In her spare time, how she had spare time, I'm not sure, she wrote a book
2: on the history of St. Louis. Yeah, so like the constantly busy work, work, work ethic of Phyllis Schlafly could absolutely be seen in her mother as well.
3: Yeah, but and also her politics, though, mm-hmm. comes straight from her dad. Her dad was 17 years older than O'deal which is going to be a similar age gap that we'll see in Phyllis Schlafly's own marriage. And... Her dad was a staunch Republican who, even though they fell on such hard times during the Great Depression, he hated FDR Mm -hmm. and hated the New Deal and wanted nothing to do with that. And so from a very young age, Mm -hmm. Phyllis was groomed, you know, to be a very conservative Republican.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's also the emotional aspect of, yes, she had a really smart, really hardworking, really busy mother. But she also grew up, in addition to hearing her father rail against the New Deal, heard her mother being filled with regret at having to work those jobs. Her mother wanted to stay home with the kids and the house and do the cooking and all of that stuff and be the traditional housewife. And so she's being raised with these ideas about traditional family and traditional politics. And because of their financial situation at home, Phyllis realized that she
3: was going to have to make her own way. It's not like uh, her parents could just pay for her to go to college. And so she worked really hard. She was always at the top of her class. And in 1944, she received her bachelor's degree from Washington University. And in a maker's interview, she talks about how she paid her way through college by working, she says, 48 hours a week. As a night shift gunner testing 30 and 50 caliber ammunition at a St. Louis munitions plant, and that is absolutely true. I mean, she not only tested uh, these guns, she would also um, like uh, document their trajectories and do all of this stuff, which seems like again very appropriate uh, <laughs> resume item for <laughs> someone who ended up leading <laughs> right wing Republicans.
2: Well, I mean, but also one thing we skipped over is that she graduated at 19. Right. She finished college in three years and graduated at 19. Like, some people don't even enter college until 19. (laughs) Like, she was, uh, I mean, this woman was so driven and was, from the outset, not going to let anything stand in her way. But at this point, she doesn't necessarily want to go into politics. Mm-hmm. She
3: ends up in 1945, uh, receiving her master's degree in political science from Radcliffe, which was the sister university to Harvard at the time, because while Harvard had started letting uh, some women from Radcliffe take colleges with the Harvard men, uh, they wouldn't fully allow women into the school. And apparently... She ended up in poli sci Mm -hmm. because it was one of the only uh, things that she could study and do it at Harvard. So she could do it in those mixed gender classrooms because it meant a lot to her to go to Harvard, not Radcliffe. And if you listen to any interviews with her, whenever she talks about her master's degree, she loves talking about, you know, her bootstrapping of her education. And she always says she went to Harvard. But, in fact, her degree is from Radcliffe. And I realize that that's kind of a minor detail, but I think it still says a lot about how she sort of adjusts her reality to fit this concept of a sexism-free world that needs no feminism. Mm -hmm. Because, as she would tell you know, audiences usually of, uh, filled with women. Well, when I went to school, there was no sexism. I had no trouble getting into college. I was able to study alongside the boys. I don't know what these feminists were talking about. And it was
2: 1945. My blood pressure. Um, and yeah, and, and just as she didn't necessarily set out to be a poli sci major, she also did not set out to be a hyper conservative right wing Republican either. She was pretty moderate, but she quickly shifted, uh, more conservative after she did face barriers. And she would not admit necessarily that they were barriers, but used it more to illustrate that she was able to sort of shift course as needed and find her niche that allowed her to, I don't know, gain power.
3: To really become Phyllis. Oh, yeah, definitely gain power, for sure. And uh, her post-college career path also... Hints as to why she has so much animosity toward big government, because Mm -hmm. after she graduates from uh, matriculates from Radcliffe, you know, the war is ending and a lot of jobs are being reserved specifically for veterans, most of whom are men. Mm -hmm. So Phyllis Wants to get a job in the federal government. She's like, I want to work on policy. This is my thing. I got really into this poli sci uh, classwork and I'm good at it. She graduated at the top of her class, but she couldn't find a job in the federal government because they were like, nope, uh, we got to save these for veterans. So big brother didn't allow Phyllis to fulfill her dream. Mm-hmm. So she ends up at. The far more conservative think tank, private think tank of the American Enterprise Institute. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible to see all of these
2: signposts along the way. Yeah, but like, here's me, you know, ghost Caroline, who's not alive yet. Like, no, but Phyllis, look at what you can fight. You can fight sexism that prevents women from going to the schools and getting the jobs that they want. But she wouldn't blame
3: not getting that federal government job on sexism because they weren't telling her you couldn't get it because you're a woman. You couldn't get it because you're not a veteran. So her ire would be pointed toward the government.
2: Okay. Well, in 1949, she marries Fred Fred Schlafly, who is a devoutly Catholic and politically active lawyer. And what... I what made me stop in my tracks is a line about her wedding vows. And this is a line that would be very much at home in an article about some, uh, you know, devout feminist getting married, perhaps in The New York Times. Uh, they write in The New York Times at the ceremony. Mrs. Schlafly said she did not promise to obey, only to cherish and that does not sound much
3: like what she would say in her 1970s anti-ERA campaign. Right. It was all about obeying Fred.
2: Yeah. Because
3: she was a good housewife.
2: Yeah. And, and so this, this, this little bone that we keep picking at is the same bone that feminists have picked for decades because they say, Phyllis, Philly. Schlafly. Schlaff. Schlaff. Oh, girl. Like, hey, you you are so active and driven on behalf of yourself, basically, and making sure that you get the opportunities that you want. But what about all of the other women? It, uh, who <laughs> does that sound like, though?
3: Who has similarly intense hair? You know, I mean, Donald Trump does a very has a very similar approach to this where your your reality is moves with the wind, whatever, you know, best serves you at that time and will most elevate you. Then then that's truth. That's your fact, whether it is actually fact or not. And uh she, though, laugh is essentially Coated in Teflon, yeah, and it's kind of incredible to see yeah. how she does just constantly deflect any criticism, and it seems like she she enjoys mm-hmm. receiving this criticism. Oh, she's just a to total,
2: it, I mean, she's a total troll. Oh yeah,
3: just a <laughs> little like run off of her. She once said uh, she told the New York Times actually in two thousand six. In the scale of liberal sins, hypocrisy is the greatest. And they've always considered me a hypocrite. And I go on to say how she defends herself by saying, you know, I never told women that they shouldn't or couldn't work outside the home. Quote, I simply didn't believe we needed a constitutional amendment to protect women's rights.
2: But did did she not advocate? For housewives, be- that being the
3: reality? Well, she certainly advocated for housewives, but she would continually say, well, I'm not telling you, you have to be a housewife. I'm just saying that we don't need to devalue housewives and that feminists are trying to undercut and destroy The role of housewives, even though and this is a whole other podcast unto itself, Caroline, even though right before old Phyllis sunk her claws into the equal rights amendment, a woman and I'm forgetting her name right now because I'm (laughs) really worked up. A woman from the National Organization for Women started this like relatively successful outreach, feminist outreach to housewives and divorced women who suddenly found themselves, you know, not really knowing how to support themselves or not really know how to how to grapple with their personal politics and their domestic situation. So it's like (laughs) so that's another myth. You know,
2: she just kind of makes up this mythology As she goes. Well, mythology that's still repeated. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That feminists want to destroy the home and destroy the family. Hi, I know many a feminist who has her own family and children even and washes the dishes. I mean, like the idea and, you know, of course, that's a silly thing to say. But my point being that like the idea that feminists are as like a monolithic army are trying to destroy uh, the family and the home. I mean, it's, it's insane, but it's clearly an effective tactic. It's clearly effective rhetoric. Oh, yeah, because it's all about stoking fear. Mm-hmm. You know,
3: that is, that's really the name of the game with all of this. And in 1952, she's just 27 years old when her political aspirations get a kick in the pants because, A group of Republicans, local Republicans, come over to her and Fred's house. They come over to the shafts, and they encourage Fred to run for Congress. There's an open seat, and they're like, Fred, you're the guy. You should do it. And Fred's like, listen, I'm not really interested. And as the story goes, at one point, one of these gentlemen jokingly says, hey, Phyllis, You should run. And Phyllis is like, "Okay, (laughs) damn straight. I should run. (laughs) And she's off from there. I mean, she really seizes this opportunity and she runs and wins the primary, which was
2: huge. Mm -hmm. But of course, she loses in the general election. Yeah, she was in a really uh, democratic area. Way more liberal. And I um, think she was against an incumbent, too. Yeah, she's yeah, she was. And uh, we read that by the end of that race, her opponent, her Democratic opponent, was so livid with the rhetoric she used about him being this liberal monster that he would not even shake her hand. He was so, so mad at the stuff that she had stirred up about him. And she wasn't even yet 30
3: oh. <laughs> already
2: <laughs> stirring that political pot. And one thing that's really interesting, though, is we were reading about how her rhetoric and the way that she positioned herself as a woman in politics really sort of echoed uh, the suffragists and women in the progressive era who were in women's clubs uh, part of the women's club movement because you, you know, remember back then women didn't have the vote. So if they wanted to agitate and be activists for any causes and help women in any way, each other, they had to join these clubs and, and band together for things like, I don't know, like daycare, um, or other, other causes that could potentially help families in their communities. And so, uh, one thing that she had in common with those early women who were being political, even if they could not be in politics, was that she positioned herself as a woman who would clean up the dirty mess of politics. And it needed cleaning up because it was run by men. And so here she is positioning herself as I'm a woman and therefore with my natural womanly abilities, um, I'll be a better candidate for you. Right, because that
3: was a suffragist argument of why we should have um, voting rights and political involvement because of the domesticity Victorian era idea of woman as the moral center of the home. Right. So let let the moral compasses and their vaginas <laughs> come into the political process fellas so we can clean up after you. Um, we also have to remember too that she was fiercely anti-communist and extremely hawkish on foreign policy to the point that she was like Joe McCarthy level and maybe even more so anti-communist. And that's really where her focus um, resided for a long time, well before she sets her sights on the ERA. And even after that defeat, though, in 1952, she gets right up and keeps going. You can tell that this kind of lit a fire for her Mm -hmm. because she starts stumping around Illinois on behalf of the Daughters of the American Revolution that she remained super active in. And from 1956 to 1964, she was president of the Illinois Federation of Republican Women. So you can see her starting to gradually rise through these organizational ranks, but now we're also seeing
2: her diverted off sort of to the women's auxiliary side of things. And in the meantime, in 1958, she and Fred started the Cardinal Mainzenti Foundation, which was named for the Roman Catholic leader who had been tortured and imprisoned by Hungarian communists in an effort to educate Catholics on the dangers of communism. And she and Fred were hyper-focused on international communism, less so on the threat of Reds in America, like McCarthy was, And a lot of that stems from the fact that she'd been so heavily focused on foreign policy and foreign politics in college. And soon after that,
3: she gets a platform. In 1962, she hosted a 15-minute radio show on national security called America, Wake Up! And it was carried by 25 Illinois stations. So she was like... A lady, Bill O'Reilly, in the radio days, almost. And the same year, her religious
2: conservatism
3: really ignites further following the Supreme Court decision prohibiting state-sponsored prayer in public schools. Which is still a massive lightning rod for religious conservatives, obviously. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like she's just kind of gathering up all of her platforms You know, in the, in the fifties and sixties. And then in 1964, Phyllis's
2: star takes off. Yeah. She refer, would refer to this later as her most productive year of her life, period. And that's saying a lot considering, you know, like we said, by the age of 27, she was already hyper political. So,
3: so what more could Phyllis be doing? Well, she was talking to the New York Times's Gina Belafonte. About how in 1964, she was, as we mentioned, uh, president of the Illinois Federation of Republican Women. She went to the Republican convention, and she was also stumping on behalf of a Republican candidate for presidential nomination, Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater made uh, his name really by voting against the Civil Rights Act because it was desegregation at the time that was freaking all the conservative white people out. And finally, here comes Barry Goldwater, who's like, you know what, folks? <laughs> I'll take a stand against this and Phyllis was like be gold you my dude (laughs) (laughs) and she wrote this book more of a pamphlet really she wrote this book though called a choice not an echo about how Barry Goldwater is the dude that you gotta put all of your Republican support behind and uh, also how he's the only person who can effectively combat that international communist threat. She self-publishes this book and as she will brag for the rest of her life, she always says that she sold three million copies out of her garage. Um, and whether or not that number is accurate, it is, it, it definitely galvanized this group of similarly white, religious, conservative Republicans, and particularly Republican women.
2: Yes, and it helped... Launch Barry Goldwater into the presidential race. He got the Republican nomination to run unsuccessfully against Democrat LBJ. And, um, you know, I-, I was curious about what was in the book. Is it a biography of him? Is it some sort of inspirational tract of literature talking about Barry Goldwater's background? Well, according to Elizabeth Colbert's uh, not a fan characterization from 2005, she wrote that uh, a choice, not an echo, was a mixture of fact, sensational accusations, commonsensical truths and elaborate conspiracy theories that is brought together in a compelling but evidently bogus narrative.
3: But it's a narrative that still uh, still remains today because. It poses these very conspiratorial questions um, that still stoke a lot of angst um, among a lot of people, you know, on either side of the political spectrum. Really, Um, (laughs) at the beginning of the book, A Choice on an Echo, she bullets out these questions for readers to think about of who really picks the president. Because according to P. Schlaf, it's a secret cabal of powerful white dudes she also asks, how are political conventions stolen? Who are the secret kingmakers and how do hidden persuaders and propaganda gimmicks influence politics? I mean, if you think that the whole lamestream media, uh, Fox News hatred of The New York Times, etc., Is a new thing. No, 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 no. Pichlath, in A Choice, Not an Echo, was calling out all of those uh, newspapers, including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Really? Yeah. As being in on this group of kingmakers. Okay. (laughs) And they would selectively report on the party, knowing full well, I guess, that, you know, who was really pulling the strings and that's kind of at the core of this right-wing populism of saying you know what there are these there are these secret meetings going on and they just they're going to turn our country into a cesspool pool of of secular Welfare nonsense. If they haven't already, sense. because of the New Deal, you know they're already terrified of, about the New Deal.
2: If you and I take the podcast on tour anytime soon, it should just be called. What, what did you say? Secular, secular nonsense. Secular <laughs> cesspool of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in this in this election cycle, we've heard similar refrains from the left. You know, uh-huh. so like there are plenty of people who are as fed up as as. P. laugh about kingmakers and the establishment. Right. As
3: fed up and also as borderline con- and slash full-blown conspiratorial. Right. Um, but something else that jumped out to me in A Choice, Not an Echo is how Schlafly describes herself, how she kind of lays out her author credibility at the beginning of the book. And she says that she's devoted thousands of hours to to the Republican Party, which is probably true. Um, And she talks about how she did this at a great sacrifice to her family because she has six kids and although she's still at the point, I don't think she has six yet. She's still having babies, um, but she's on her way to six. And this is in direct contrast to what she'll be saying in the 70s where there is no sacrifice all of a sudden. It's just what she did just as a hobby. Yeah,
2: It was just easy for me. I Don't worry. I still managed to be a fabulous housewife and mother. Did we employ a full-time housekeeper? Yes. But she always bragged that they did not employ a nanny. Right. And that she homeschooled each of her six children until they were seven. And that she breastfed all of them. Yeah. Which I'm surprised she even said the word. Breast. I Maybe know. she didn't. Maybe she just pointed to her boobs and winked. <laughs> Pointed at her kids mm-hmm. like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these. Yeah, it it
3: is uh it, that was something else that comes up in pretty much every profile of her. And she breastfed her six children. It's like okay, okay. Why you know? But that's part of her whole perfect housewife image that she cultivated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But even though a choice on an echo was very successful in getting Barry Goldwater to be that year's Donald Trump, essentially. Um, and it was very successful for spotlighting uh, the potential influence of Phyllis Schlafly because Goldwater lost so starkly uh, to LBJ, the GOP establishment, hashtag dudes were like, you know what? Uh, your white right wing ultra conservative movement stuff like stay in the corner. Mm-hmm. Like obviously you are not going to help the the party as a whole, so we're going to steer things back more moderate. And laugh like we're not going to give you like a position or anything because you're a woman. So just keep doing your your womaning thing. So she did really get like the sexist shaft from the GOP. Not surprisingly.
2: So you're saying that Schlaff got the shaft. Yes. Schlaff got the shaft, but then Schlaff would turn around and shaft us. Oh, yeah, in the 70s. But we're not even there yet.
3: We're not even there yet. Because that's the thing. Most people's recollection of Phyllis Schlafly just starts with the ERA. Mm -hmm. But you got to know all the stuff leading up to it to make it all make sense. So what's happened <laughs> what has happened? What, what has happened? <laughs> so P. Schlaff has gotten snubbed, essentially. She ran for presidency of the National Federation of Republican Women because, you know, she had been running a state level organization. She went for the national position and they were like, "Nah, girl, you wrote that book in your garage. Good for you. But uh, your candidate lost. So,
2: no. Nah. And that was a huge burn for her. Oh yeah, that was a huge burn. And she manages though to pull a lot of the women in the National Federation of Republican Women away to support her because she starts publishing in 1967 this weekly newsletter, The Schlafly Report. Um, and it started out with just about 3,000 Subscribers. And a lot of those were women that she had met in this, um, National Federation of Republican Women, um, as well as, uh, women from her other organization that she'd been leading. Um, but, uh, as we'll talk about in the second half of the podcast, she does pull some amazing political and w- religious-based maneuvering to massively raise the number of subscribers. Yeah. And just in the
3: background, politically, we gotta mention that in 1966, even though just two years earlier, hyper conservative racist Barry Goldwater, you know, lost so famously to LBJ. But that year, you start to see conservative Republicans winning some significant congressional and gubernatorial races, including one Ronald Reagan becoming governor of California. So, Schlafly, you know, launching her newsletter the next year is really banking on the rise of this conservative movement, which uh, up until then had, had been this kind of niche pocket of people. Um, but she's starting to see it mainstream because, really just because like white people were getting really scared about black people and feminists. Um, and three years after, P. Schlaff launches the Schlaffley report. She runs for Congress again and fails again. But despite her faltering start, Phyllis is about to bust out and never look back. That's right. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break.
0: Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh, my God. We've all been there. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The
0: all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and streamed anytime.
2: So in the early 70s, even though the Equal Rights Amendment had been around for about 50 years, um, she really claimed she wasn't aware of it. Um, She didn't Was not aware of any massive movement behind it. And it wasn't until she says a friend says, hey, you should check out this whole ERA thing. You might be interested in it. That she reads it and like all of the light bulbs go off above her head and she says, aha, here is the enemy. And for those of you not
3: familiar with the ERA, as I really wasn't um, until doing research for Stuff Mom Never Told You, it was first introduced in 1923 by Alice Paul at the Seneca Falls Convention. And the ERA, which would have been the 27th Amendment if it had gone through, it's very simple in its language. It just states, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So essentially it would render gender based discrimination illegal Mm -hmm. on a federal or state level across the board. Um, And people today say that if the ERA had been passed and had been um, ratified, I should say, that all of the cobbling together that women have to do today between Title IX and other state laws and stuff like that, there would not be any of this maneuvering around that we would have to do in light of gender-based or uh, sexual discrimination because the ERA would have just, in very simple language, accounted for all of that. But uh, P Schlaf was not going to let that happen, even though
2: the ERA was widely supported like across the aisle Yeah, by Democrats and Republicans alike. Yeah. Women, men. Everybody's like, yeah, sure. Of course. Even George Wallace from
3: Alabama, who was about as racist as they come, mm-hmm. was chill with the ERA. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I know. Well, because I think a lot of people. Saw it as like, well, we already have language in these other various laws and amendments that, you know, we shouldn't discriminate against women. Like, sure, why not throw this on the pile? I think it was seen as, as kind of not toothless, but just like acceptable. Give this to the ladies. Yeah, let them have it. Let them have
3: it. Uh, well, you know who was not having it? Was old P. Schlaff. And in 1972, she writes about it in the Schlaffley Report. Dedicates a whole issue to it, Uh in fact. And this is what starts the anti-feminist campaign against the ERA. And boy, did she have some ideas about what that simple sentence really meant.
2: Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. She said that the ERA was going to eliminate sex-segregated public restrooms. We still hear that panic today, don't we? It's going to force women into the draft. Wasn't that just in the news? It's going to dissolve sex crime laws. I... Yeah, I got nothing. Uh, it's going to remove men's financial responsibilities to be breadwinners, uh, or the payers of child support. Uh oh. More women are becoming breadwinners these days. And she basically considered women, as we, as we touched on earlier in the episode, she basically considered women to be this privileged, protected, class who would lose those privileges and protections if the era went through and that's why my brain was just collapsing last night as i was researching this stuff because it's like well no but if we if we're protected under the law through the era in the way that the era spells out we won't have to worry about these so-called privileges and protections, and what I would call benevolent sexism. Oh yeah, but if you aren't stoking worry and fear,
3: how are you going to start this movement? How's Peach laugh gonna, well, you know, galvanize
2: her gals? And galvanize the gals she does because the subscriptions to her newsletter shoot up from about 3,000 to 35,000 thanks to all of this fear stoking that she does not only among women like herself, you know, good Catholic housewives, but also among the evangelical Christian housewives, like ladies, 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 (laughs) like we have a lot to worry about in terms of losing those cushy lives that we know. And this is something
3: that I read all the time in stuff I've never told you, YouTube comments from men's rights activist trolls who claim, Oh, feminists are just victimizing themselves because. In P. Schlaf's terms, like you're a privileged class, people take you out for dinner, you get discounts at happy hours and, you know, you have a f- affirmative action, you well, get if, whatever you want. If you paid me
2: equally, then maybe I wouldn't. Need a discount? Exactly for your happy hour. For
3: my happy hour. <laughs> um, and this—the thing is, though, she's starting this. She kind of is starting it out of her garage. She's writing her own newsletter. She's sending it out. It's very grassrootsy, and that becomes really the source of. Her political influence. And it's
2: her brand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's
3: totally her brand. The Pichlaff brand is all about the grassroots. She has this newsletter base, largely comprised of fellow conservative housewives. And once she stirs them up, they start fundraising. They start sending out mailers. They start hosting anti-ERA press conferences. And importantly... Lobbying their state legislatures, they would go carrying loaves of homemade banana bread and apple loaves and things like that, little goodies, and deliver them to all of the politicians who were going to vote on the ERA that day and say, oh, we don't, we don't need that. Good, sir.
2: Have a little apricot muffin. What was in the bread? Did they put something in it? (laughs) Drugging their legislators. And then Phyllis teams up with North Carolina Democratic Senator Sam Irvin. No relation. In the past couple generations, at least, um, who opposed the ERA. And this allows her whole stop ERA movement to cross party lines. Yeah.
3: Um, And keep in mind, too, that in 1973, just a year after. Uh, Schlafly starts going after the ERA. Roe v. Wade happens. And so this is, of course, stirring up even more angst mm-hmm. among conservatives. So then in 1975, we see her take her success with developing this stop ERA group and Transitioning it into the Eagle Forum. And this is essentially the women's auxiliary of the conservative right wing uh, contingent of the Republican Party at the time. Um, And the Eagle Forum, which was 20,000 strong in 1975, lobbied politically lobbied for conservatism alongside sister groups like How, Happiness of Women, and Aware, which stood for American Women, are richly endowed. Phyllis
2: is beside herself. Although, I don't know if you could describe someone who is as cool, calm, and collected as Phyllis as ever beside herself. Oh, because she's very calculating. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And so her major beef, though, with the growing contingent of feminists in the U.S. is all about how they are messing with the natural order of things. It goes back to her assertion that feminists are trying to destroy the family. Yeah. um, So in
3: 1994, she wrote one of many columns in which she says feminism is incompatible with human nature. The premise of the feminists is that God goofed in making us two different sexes and that our laws should remedy his
2: mistake. And I guess, okay, I'm going to make this a little personal for a second. Like, I guess that's why so many of her arguments and similar arguments don't make sense to me, because I am not a person who is religious or uh, has God as a a former very inappropriate boss of mine said um, to me one time. Uh, so like things like that don't make sense to me saying that there is a natural order in the way that the biological sexes have to be or the genders have to be.
3: Yeah. And I'm sitting here across from you, not surprised at all, because a a large part of my childhood was spent in evangelical churches and while the pastors weren't railing against feminism every Sunday. There was definitely concern, particularly over the homosexual agenda, mm. because that definitely violated, in quotes, nature.
2: And so that's like a whole other aspect of right-wing activism and pushes behind their their politics that, that I... Simply as a person on the left, do not have because I just it's not part of my worldview, but it was it so shaped hers. Oh, definitely. I
3: mean, and and part of that too is attached to her uh familiar distaste for east coast elitists Mm. and liberals and um. (laughs) <laughs> One thing that she really goes on and on about in A Choice on an Echo is how uh, Barry Goldwater is the person that you should vote for because he has simple ideas, simple solutions, whereas LBJ and all these liberal Democrats, they just have these convoluted theories and bureaucratic structures and they just want to muck everything up, whereas, you know, it's just it's just nature. It's just man and wife. It's this and that. You know, it, it's a very black and white mm-hmm. worldview. And that's a, it's a similar thing that we see today where there is this distaste among uh, right wing right wing conservatives for non simplistic answers because that challenges their worldview in a terrifying way. And I mean, I also say this from the perspective of, you know, being very cognizant, even at a young age of how a lot of the rhetoric, political rhetoric that I heard in conservative churches um, that my parents attended was just so fear stoking. Mm-hmm. You could feel it in the room, you know, and it was uh, powerful enough to get Schlafly where she wanted to go. And in addition to her argument about feminism being incompatible with human nature, she also (laughs) kind of suggested that feminism was out to replace husbands with government big brother.
2: Right. So look at you, dumb feminist. You're just trying to get rid of the home, get rid of the family structure, get rid of the husband who can provide for you. They can be the breadwinners if you just let them. But instead, you want to get rid of all that and have the government give to you. Have the government be your breadwinner and your husband and accept welfare and public assistance and things like that. And it doesn't this sound like a
3: frustrated, just out of college, Phyllis, who can't get a a job in the government because Big Brother has saved all the other jobs for other... Brothers, essentially. Um, and, and the way she puts it though in one column, it might have been the same, uh, that same column from 1994. She, uh, she, she uses sarcasm in rhetorical questions a lot. So she sneers. Need a job? Big Brother will get you an affirmative action quota position. You don't meet the physical requirements? Big Brother will gender norm the test results and give you a high score. Not satisfied with your salary? The Comparable Worth Commission will order your employer to give you a raise. And if you want a promotion, the Glass Ceiling Commission will force your employer to give it to you. So it's just this idea that we are making up. These problems, and through this group of kingmakers, we, you know, the government then establishes these committees that just, uh, you know,
2: give magically give women raises. Well, I mean, all of her rhetorical questions there go back to her emphatic assertion that there is no such thing as this patriarchy that oppresses women, that women are not oppressed. And then her Assertions are directly tied to today's conversations around women are making themselves victims. Well, and this next quote
3: about how she describes the relationship between feminism and the federal government is so reminiscent of what you hear today among women against feminism. And or anti-feminist, whichever way you want to put it, where she says our societal policy should be to let women make their own decisions about marriage and career without the interference of taxpayer funded gender equity, federal busybodies. Well, uh, so she's trying to have both at the same time. Yeah. You know, she's trying to (laughs) to say that we don't need feminism, but, you know, not because. You know, we don't want the best for women, but just because we don't think that the, anyone should be telling women what to do. So isn't feminism telling women what to do? And so that's why, you know, women shouldn't be for feminism. And yes, it does make you and I do mean you caroline <laughs> and myself want to uh, slowly bang our heads against the desk. And ditto. Betty Friedan (laughs) and many
2: other, you know, second wave feminists of the day. Oh, Betty. Yeah. Uh, Teflon Phyllis managed to infuriate frequent debate opponent Betty Friedan to the point where Betty told her that she should burn at the stake. Yeah. And Phyllis, the troll, loved it. Loved it. Oh, yeah, because she was like,
3: oh, I'm so glad you said that, because it just goes to show Mm -hmm. how nasty you feminists are. And, of course, Schlafly had her opinions about Betty Friedan as well. She said, I reject all her ideology... She said, I reject all her ideology, most of it based on the absurd notion that the home is a comfortable concentration camp and that the suburban housewife is oppressed by her husband and by society. And she loved calling feminists fat, ugly and unlikable, which, again, I'm telling you, like reading about P. Schlaff is just kind of like reading about donald trump in a lot of ways minus the reality tv shows
2: yeah it goes back to my college sociology class in which we were talking about feminism and a fellow student of mine and i've told this story on the podcast before but a fellow classmate um raised her hand and basically said but if we like men and want to get married shouldn't we not agree with any of this stuff and it's like that whooshing sound is the point completely going over your head um cuz yeah like the worst thing to some people is to be considered or just called fat or ugly or unlikable oh and definitely you know if we're talking about the 70s you know
3: our society is still i would not say is woke but it was certainly less woke in the 70s um but As much as I really hate to keep quoting Phyllis Schlafly, because it's never a pleasant thing that you will have to say. I do think it's worth highlighting a few of her positions on feminist issues.
2: Yeah, she didn't think that marital rape was a thing. Nope. Uh, She said by getting married, the woman has consented to sex and I don't think you can call it rape. On sexual harassment, uh, no big surprise,
3: she hated Anita Hill. And she just thought that that woman was just raking that honorable Clarence Thomas over the coals unnecessarily because she's a feminist and was just sad that he wouldn't take her out on a date. So on sexual harassment, Schlafly said, quote, non-criminal sexual harassment on the job is not a problem for the virtuous woman, except in the rarest of cases.
2: Yeah, so... Insert victim blaming here. Mm -hmm. Like, well, if you're a virtuous woman, you should have nothing to worry about. What were you wearing? Exactly. Uh, and, uh, domestic violence. Uh, she said that when marriages are broken by false allegations of domestic violence, U.S. taxpayers fork up an estimated 20 billion a year to support the resulting single parent welfare dependent families. And I'm like, that's your concern? Like a woman. Who falsely accuses a man of domestic violence and then is single as a result? because then
3: who's gonna have to pay for that? Big brother. The taxpayers. <laughs> you know, we're we're having to fund this welfare state. And really, I mean, pointing out her horrific stances on these kinds of issues is to illustrate how she was not just responsible for stopping the ERA in its tracks, which she and stop ERA and the Eagle Forum absolutely did. But also in essentially building what is today the ultra right wing policy platform. It's,
2: it's as if she wrote the script for women to continue to be demeaned and not believed. When it comes to some of these awful issues.
3: Right. But I mean, these are, but these are like
2: political platforms now. Yeah. You
3: know, if you turn on, if you spend some time on Breitbart news, actually don't
2: spend some time on Breitbart news and you'll see all of these similar things going on. P.S. A Breitbart guy was one of the men who came after me on Twitter. Oh,
3: really? Yeah. A Breitbart reporter? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I'm not surprised. I am not surprised. Um... (laughs) But then in 1978, we see another contradiction to her uh, career housewife claim because she goes to law school. I mean, and in a way, like if she were anyone else, you and I would be like, good for her, mother of six. After the kids grow up, she goes back to law school. And that's what she argues. Like, well, I waited until my children were grown. They could take care of themselves. I had breastfed all of them. Did I tell you I breastfed all of them? I really did. Um, and she completes her law degree at Washington University. When she goes to take the bar, her public profile was already, like, significant enough that she took it in a disguise. She wore a black wig
2: mm-hmm. in order to take her exam and she passed it. Well, and her husband, you know, and this is another anecdote that she would tell over and over again over the years that her husband at first did not want her to go to law school and didn't understand why she felt the need to. Um and then so she withdrew her application to law school. And then a couple of weeks later, he changed his mind and is like, you know what? It would actually having a law background would actually help with a lot of the public policy work and uh, ERA fights that you do.
3: Well, and I mean, her relationship with Fred is really fascinating and something that I wish we knew more about, because I think that's one of the most frustrating things about um, reading up on Phyllis is that you know that you're not learning about the real Phyllis. You know that there's stuff going on in the background because yeah. this is an image that she cultivated right. for political purposes. Whereas before she has this shift um, against feminism in the 1970s, she talks about how during her you know early marriage with Fred, like, they would stay up until all hours, just brainstorming and talking politics. Like, they courted each other, but through, th- through letters, mailing each other, uh, poetry and essentially, like, mini policy briefs. There were, like, a couple of wonks. Yeah. But she played it all down in order to conform to a more palatable interesting submissive image that would fit into which also sounds very house of cardsy. Yeah. Which fit into this mold, you know, that could then elevate her um to the platform that she ended up having, which in 1980 she used her influence to successfully negotiate with the GOP To remove its pro ERA platform plank. And this is when we finally see the Republican Party, which previously had a lot of ERA supporters in it. It Mm -hmm. wasn't as conservative as it is today by a long shot. We finally see them er, turning that corner
2: as Reagan is about to take over. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And June 30th, 1982, Phyllis holds a party because the congressional deadline for states to ratify the ERA expires. And they were, what, three states short of ratification? And so from there, she's like, cool, box checked, done. Now let's make sure that we hinder the fight for LGBTQ rights, for welfare, and for reproductive rights. Which, of course, she had been harping
3: on throughout her anti-ERA campaign. Even though she has a gay son. Oh yeah. In 1992, her gay son was outed. I'm not a fan of people oh, no. outing people at all. Um, I understand the attraction to wanting to out Phyllis Schlafly's son. Um, but yeah, one of her sons who, who lived, at least like at the time it was reported, he was still living with Fred and Phyllis and was still, you know, dedicated to the conservative cause and Phyllis kind of had to hedge her love for her child and her versus her hatred for homosexuals
2: and their agenda. Oh yes. The homosexual agenda.
3: Yeah. Which I just imagine. like, get is there a notebook? Jog, yeah.
2: You know, you can buy it at office Depot. I think the get planner. A smoothie. Yeah. They now have an app. They the get oh. agenda. You can just have it on your phone. It's oh. like a calendar. Perfect. Yeah. It's really colorful. And she would continue, though, throughout the rest of her life to maintain that women were that privileged class. And she offered advice on NPR in 2014 to women, saying, just remember, American women are so fortunate. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess relatively in the grand scheme of global privileges. Well, her version of fortunate
3: is that she always praises men right after she says that. We're so fortunate because we have all these brilliant men who invented all of this brilliant technology that allowed us to easily wash our clothes, and we got disposable diapers, and you have all these conveniences that I didn't have growing up. And so comparatively, women are just so fortunate, and you just need to remember that and don't victimize yourself. And a few years earlier to the New York Times, she had said, feminism has changed the way women think and it's changed the way men think. But the trouble is, it hasn't changed the attitude of babies at all. And so that, of course, is hearkening to her whole feminism violates the laws of nature like babies know better <laughs> babies.
2: Boy babies know that they should be little baby breadwinners. <laughs> babies gnawing on some bread. <laughs> Um, And the funny thing that, you know, if you haven't picked up on the theme of this episode yet, the funny thing that former now president Karen DeCrow pointed out in 1981 was that no matter the words that came out of Phyllis Schlafly's mouth, she was a liberated woman. And as DeCrow says, she sets out to do something and she does it to me. That's liberation. Oh, yeah. And
3: she also spotted the gender inequalities that feminism still seeks to uproot. Um, At one point in response to that really harsh blow that she took in 1967 when uh, she lost her bid for the National Federation of Republican Women presidency, um, she said, quote, the Republican Party is carried on the shoulders of the women who do the work in the precincts, ring doorbells, distributing literature and doing all the tiresome, repetitious campaign tasks. Many men in the party, frankly, want to keep the women doing the menial work. Like if that is not <laughs> something that should then be followed <laughs> by a statement of feminist support, I don't know what is. And that's the confounding thing about Phyllis yep. Schlafly. Yep. She she encountered sexism and, you know, she knew it was sexism because she's calling it out right there, recognizing that here are the women in the trenches doing all of this grassroots organizing that ultimately has revolutionized American political culture. Look at Donald Trump today. And yet she's saying, but, you know, the dudes
2: don't want to acknowledge it. They just want to keep us in the corner. Yeah, Phyllis is far from stupid. This yeah. woman is not dumb. She's incredibly brilliant and incredibly driven. And she is just driven down a different path.
3: Yeah. I mean, and and the moral of the story is uh, A, remember that women are not a monolith, right? Smart women are not a monolith, mm-hmm. you know? And also, as she always likes to say, like they never took me seriously. Like everyone always underestimated her when she was starting out in her uh a choice, not an echo era, when she was just on the fringes with this, you know, this little group of uh ultra conservatives. And she was like, eh, you know, they didn't see what was coming. And she's she's proud of that, you know, because she she kind of put one over on us because we were we were so quick to, I think. Liberals were so quick to write off all of a sudden this, who's this housewife?
2: And look what she did. She was a wolf in housewife clothing. (laughs) Who, like you said, completely changed American politics.
3: And I think the final words we have to leave on are Phyllis Schlafly talking to makers saying, I always thought I could do whatever I wanted to do. What's the problem? And the what's the problem, essentially, she's asking that to society of like, where where's the sexism in that I could do what I wanted to do. And she did. And I think it behooves us to not underestimate the ripple effect that this woman is still having and will continue to have. So, listeners, uh Caroline, by the way, is I think is going to have to recover from from this episode. Um, cause she's a lot to, she's a lot to fathom. Um, and she's a, she's disappointing, really. I mean, she's, she's a terribly disappointing woman to read about. Um, if you're sitting where we are. So now listeners, we want to hear from you. What do you think about Phyllis Schlafly, her influence and her connection to Donald Trump today? And can we ever undo the damage done by Phyllis Schlafly? Honestly, I think the answer is no. But listeners, perhaps you are less cynical than I. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break.
0: Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
2: He never passes the rock. He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. And now back to the show. All right. All right. Well, I have a letter here from Kim uh, in response to our Minstrel Cup episode. Um, she says, I started using the Keeper in 2000 after hearing about it from a co-worker in the United States Coast Guard serving on ships it was difficult to use pads and tampons as four-hour watches did not lend themselves to products lasting more than three or so hours and not being able to use the restroom in that time the keeper was a lifesaver no pun intended I had times when I would be on watch for up to 12 hours and not having to worry about an accident was beneficial I made sure to talk with every woman who was assigned about this wonderful product it was easy to get over the squick factor after a few times and not have Having to carry extra products, that up to 12 hours window is the selling point. I used the latex brown version, and mine lasted 10 years. I replaced it with the silicone version, which, ironically, again, no pun intended, turned a similar shade of brown from the blood staining. Anyway, love the podcast. I've learned so much and laughed even more. Keep up the awesome sauce work. Well, thanks, Kim. So is that why the keeper is brown? Maybe. I still maintain it, it should just be
3: red. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a menstrual cup letter to read from Allison, who wrote... I was so excited to hear your recent podcast on menstrual cups and was fascinated to hear their long and storied history. I was so disappointed, however, at the comments you received when you posted an article on Facebook about the reasons menstrual cups aren't more popular. There were countless comments, many from men, like, gross, ew, I didn't need to see that, and I can think of a lot more than four reasons, and no thanks, that made me realize we haven't really come all that far from the days of the red tents, Women's bodies are still seen as dirty, which just makes me sad. And not to get too hyperbolic, but my cup has changed my life. I initially chose a cup for both environmental reasons and practical reasons. I'm a swimmer and swim instructor, and tampons are just not always the best choice for long sessions in the pool. I have endometriosis with severe cramping and was pleasantly surprised to find the cup actually lessened my cramping pretty significantly. I'm not sure why exactly, but my theory has something to do with the way the cervix is positioned while the cup is inserted. To anyone who has tried a cup and not found them to be ideal, please don't give up. The first cup I tried was too large and too firm, causing painful pressure on both my bladder and my cervix. I did some research before I bought my second one, and it's now seriously a perfect solution to an otherwise painful time of the month for me. Well, Thanks for the info, Allison. And yeah, it is always disappointing to see people on social media act like children over something that is a natural bodily function. So, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more if you dare about Phyllis Schlafly. Head on over to com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: So here's something that some of you might find shocking.